Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy. Welcome to If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. Now each human story is different, but some relationships with the city are more complicated than others. In this episode, we're going to go off the beaten track into a parallel world. It's a distinctive part of Glasgow, but rarely visited or recognised by the more mainstream world until planning problems arise. So the story is full of colourful characters, complexities and contradictions. Perhaps that's not surprising when a travelling community becomes more settled and their traditional wintering grounds lie in the way of new development possibilities. According to established views, Glasgow is home to the largest concentration of show people in Europe. Historically, they have made their mark. Show people opened the city's first cinemas, they created the tradition of winter fairs at the Calvin Hall and summer shows on Glasgow Green. Even so, this tight-knit community has remained largely unnoticed. And according to today's guest, that's the way proudly independent show people have tended to like it, and he should know. So today's guest is Dr. Mitch Miller, social researcher, artist, cultural activist, and creative community collaborator. And Mitch was born on four wheels and spent a happy childhood with his show people parents on the road, traveling from fairground to fairground. Yet unlike his siblings or many of his peers, Mitch completed and furthered his education, leading to a PhD in communications design from Glasgow School of Art. He is an acknowledged expert on the history of traveling show people, but always a cartoonist as hot heart and a cartoonist as he has said, with delusions of grandeur. So when the Commonwealth Games threatened to sweep away show people's homes, many of them inconveniently located in the path of the games, Mitch picked up his pen and the Delectogram was born. And we'll get on to more about what a Delectogram involves in a minute. So Dr. Mitch Miller is an eloquent writer and speaker. Over the last couple of decades, he has become a pioneering presence in Glasgow. That includes co-founding The Druth magazine, helping to establish exhibitions at Riverside Museum and Kelvin Hall about the history and heritage of show people, as well as documenting the lives of other vulnerable communities in and around the city. So a very warm welcome to the podcast, Mitch. It's a great privilege to be taken inside this kind of fascinating but endangered parallel world. And there's so much to talk about, so it's hard to know where to begin. But perhaps we might start with your own beginning. So first question, it's probably fair to say that your beginning was unusual. Not many of us are born on four wheels. So can you tell us a bit more about your early years and why, along with many other show people, you've chosen Glasgow as your kind of natural home? Um, thanks, Neil, and hello. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I hope I can live up to that wonderful introduction. I feel very um, inadequate. Of course you can. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I was born to um, two show families, both my mother and father's families go way back uh, in this edition, um, both from kind of mixed circus and fairground families uh, as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, to me, it was normal, you know, I I had a big extended family. Um, they travelled in the summer. When I went to see relatives, we were often off to find them at different fairs around Scotland. Um, I never paid to get on the waltzer or indeed any fairground ride. That was normal to me. Um, and I, it was it was just life really, I suppose, in those early years. Um, but I think when you do kind of live with a feet, foot on either pier, you're kind of more aware again of what does make it distinctive and I suppose I started to notice that whereas my friends had weekends for example as I got older weekends were for work you know you had a, a role within the family you had a job to do um, as part of what your family did um, so I didn't have Saturdays or Sundays you know for most of my most of my life um, until I went and got my own job and then I could take them off. Um, and yeah, I just sort of lived part of that life and, and lived in the flow of it, really. Um, and yeah, it was it was a good life. You know, you were surrounded by relatives, cousins. Um, I still discover new cousins to this day. You know, the, my, my mother's great phrase was, that's your cousin, um, because there were just so many of us. Um, and yeah, it was a very, it felt a very like a very safe life, a very protected life, um, quite a hard one at times, though. Um, you know, it's a hard way of making a living, traveling from place to place and 
braving the Scottish weather, you know, in the summer. Um, but yeah, it, I, I always felt it gave me a very good grounding, um, a very good sort of base from which to work. I always had a very clear idea of who I was, I suppose, um, in relation to that. And then as I, as I grew older, I suppose, I started to explore the outside world a bit more and, and learn more about that and in some ways appreciate that background even more as a result, although it wasn't always a smooth journey, I would say, uh, in any respect. Okay, um, so can you tell us more about kind of the, the long-standing relationship between show people and, you know, what, what is their favourite winter, and in this case, Glasgow, and any of the issues that kind of can potentially have emerged from that over, over time? Yeah, so, sorry, yeah, the, the, the relationship with Glasgow is, is a very old one. Um, so, just to, to start from my family, I suppose, it's a good way of explaining it. So, my family, my dad's family were border travellers. So, they, they travelled to border towns and the north of England, mostly, um, and ranged out from there. Uh, they often wintered in Carlisle, um, actually, but sometimes in Glasgow. Um, but my mum's family, um, they were what was called tramline travellers, and... They, the, the, the term came from the fact that, you know, you could travel around the greater Glasgow area without leaving it in an entire season. You know, there was all these different fairs that... Right, uh, okay, hence the tram. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Glasgow has had a long history of travelling showgrounds, in part because, you know, theatre used to be banned here. You know, you weren't allowed to have theatre until quite, quite recently, like late 19th century. So the fairs were performed a very important function in terms of bringing entertainment. So Mam's family didn't, they ranged out a couple of places in the season, but generally stayed within the Glasgow kind of environment. Um, and that sort of reflects a, a long-standing relationship with Glasgow. As I said, because, you know, you didn't have theatre here, you weren't, they weren't allowed to have theatres here. Um, a guy called David Prince Miller, who was a travelling show person, I don't know if he's a relative, um, actually. Um, he had his, you know, his Adelphi theatre famously burnt down, you know. Um, it was very, Glasgow was very against that in the old days. Um, so that created a sort of ecosystem of small fairs and, and often a lot of winter fairs as well that go way back. Um, you know, 200 years or so. Um, but Glasgow's also geographically um, perfectly placed to go south or north. You know, you can access the north and the south from here. It's uh, it's a good sort of locus for that. Um, but also, it's an industrial city. It has lots of brown belt. It has lots of yards and lots and bits of ground that just sit there. Um, and unlike Edinburgh, say, um, if I dare mention the name of that city in this podcast, um, you know, it's... It's available. It's not going to, you know, you can be out of the way and, and tuck yourself in um, into different parts of the city. So I think a combination of factors made this the capital for show people, in a sense, of, of Scotland. It's where most, about 80% of us live, we think, um, and where we tend to range out from. Right, okay. Oh, that kind of brings me on to my next question, which is, it, it is quite extraordinary that there is this, you know, really significant community within the city that hasn't, has been relatively unnoticed for so long. So how many show people actually live in Glasgow? Um, you know, for Scotland's latest census, that was the first time that show people were included within it. And so does that kind of make a difference? Yes, well, we hope it will. So we haven't actually got our census figures back yet um, from this census, and we're very keen to see it. Uh, now, there's figures that go about uh, of between about four to 6,000 living in Glasgow, is, is what is thought. Now, I can tell you now, honestly, that's a back of a beer mat calculation. <laughs> it was the best efforts of those who had been doing a bit of research in it. But we'd, we didn't have you know, inclusion in the census, for example, which would mean that we'd have more robust figures. So um, myself and a bunch of other researchers actually campaigned to get us added to the census for the last time. And hopefully when those figures come back, we will know. And I can tell you honestly how many of us there are. Yeah, very, very much. Because things like that, they're absolutely critical for um, being able to direct services, you know, towards a, towards a community. So you need to have, you need to be able to kind of gather that information somehow. Um, because it's going to kind of influence other things like planning as well. And not just in kind of the, the sense of building stuff, but planning for communities. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, when we're having these discussions, you know, I, I work with Fair Scotland, uh, an organisation that advocates for this and the, the Showman's Guild. Um, and when we're having these discussions, you know, we're, we're saying, you know, well, there is a community here that, that we need to address certain things. And then we get asked, well, how many, you know, we, ask, we get asked for the hard data behind that, and it's very hard to provide it. 
So I think just in terms of that discussion, it will help that a great deal. Okay, so um, show people tend to occupy land where no one else has chosen to live until the kind of the grassroots of regeneration appear. Um, so the Commonwealth Games threatened to sweep away many traditional wintering grounds and yards, and that led to the creative activism of your dialectogram. So can you tell us something about what a dialectogram is, and can you tell us more about you know how how collaborative dialectography, if that is actually a word, su- supports community campaigns around the city? Yeah, I think the thing to emphasise is that um, all these words are made up, obviously. Um, so I made up dialectogram. It's a bad pun. I think we can all agree with that. It's what happens after several um, cans of beer and a, and a bit of panic comes in because uh, when I was going to work at Red Road, I was asked um, to define what I did and I really didn't quite know at that stage um, the kind of work I was bringing out. So I don't know, I, I just plucked it out somewhere and dialectogram came out of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bad pun basically of dialect and diagram. Um they're kind of they're very complex illustrations of places, and they're sort of made from conversation, observation, and a lot of ink. I suppose is is the easy way of putting it. Um, I'll spend a lot of time in a community, getting to know its places, working out how a building or a site or a you know location of some kind works, what it means to those people, trying to bring people into an ongoing and kind of rolling conversation about it. And then in the middle of that, I'm starting to draw and map out a kind of representation of it. Um, And everyone's different. Everyone, you know, is made differently. There's the kind of shape of the community, the way the community works will really determine who wants to have their say, who doesn't. I've, I've done some that had only about three or four people involved and, Others about two hundred, you know, it's it's a real range in terms of that engagement. But at the heart of it is this idea that I'm trying not to make something about the community. I'm trying to make it with and through it as much as possible. Trying to include them in that discussion. Um, trying to be directed by them to some extent as well, and then to let this kind of visual trace or visual record of of what their place is come from that. Right. How how do you actually work on them? Are they like is it a spontaneous thing, or do you like sit down with a, a sheet and know how you're going to populate it, or is it something you plan in advance, or how how do you go about doing it? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if there's a dialectography, it's not a science. I think is the first thing I would say. Um, basically, I'm a, as I said before, I'm a cartoonist with delusions of grandeur, and that. Is, is sadly very true. Um, I kind of treat it like a comic initially. So I work on this A0 mount board, and that's like the basic unit of of these. Um, some are double size from that, but you know, the smallest it goes is A0. And I'll start with the ground plan, and I'll start with just working out how the ground is laying out. And, and I use that almost as a comic panel to then think about how the narrative can be shaped within that and, and placed within that. Um, and then from that it just sort of grows and, and what happens is you know I'll sort of have a wee burst of work and I'll start to flesh it out then I'll do what artists do and prevaricate um, horribly and think about it and maybe go and do some more field work because that's way more fun yes yeah way more fun um, and then I'll come back to it and I'll maybe do a bit more I also will often involve people at that stage so I'll bring people in to let them see the drawing in process so for example at a place you know um called the clay pits up in north glasgow for example i i spent many time many kind of days introducing it to the community again and showing them look it's half done it doesn't look terrible how can we fill this up what can we add to this and we sort of have an ongoing conversation about what could be there what should be there how people feel about that somehow through all of this and after many many um weeks um, and I know you have. I know you've talked to Chris Leslie on this podcast, and he has to work with me. So pity this man because I <laughs> I spend ages. It takes me ages to finish a piece. It's a very messy process. Whereas he, of course, is a proper photographer, nice and clean. Press the button, get get the get the image. You know, he's done in five minutes. I'm done in about eight months. Um, 
and yeah, somehow it comes about, and then we have this piece of work that that exists. Um, after that, what I do is I'll I'll photograph it, so it's got there's a digital version. Uh, we can make that into signs. We can make that into you know various outputs. Um, never a tablecloth, which is my ambition. Um, and then we also can do things like we. I mean, imagine a tablecloth. You can add to it as well. A bit of mayonnaise here, a tomato sauce there. You're, you're adding to the dialectogram. But the original always stays with the community as well. I always make sure it stays somewhere it can be accessed. And so it kind of belongs to them too, you know. So I, I try not to sort of go in, make the artwork and then leave. I try to sort of leave a bit of it behind so that it's there for them as well. And yeah, I've, I've done that in all sorts of weird places. Tower blocks, showman's yards, um, nature reserves... African art centres, uh, steeples. It's uh, been a very strange catalogue so far. You kind of, as as kind of part of your your process, it kind of took about a sense of social responsibility for us, and it, it does sound as well like it can be quite energetic at times. You want to talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, I have also of clients. So I've had clients from libraries who want to kind of rework what their library is and how it can serve the community to grassroots organisations to uh, community, you know, more community groups um, I've even done work with some anarchists um, at the University of Glasgow you know it's been a very very strange um, trip and I think what that does is that you know every time I'm going into working with a group I'm having to sort of adjust myself to that and, and learn from that as well and, and learn how this is best done um, but yeah there's a lot of energy it's quite it's quite an exhausting process. It's not, if you want to do this, you know, it's not an in and out. It's not a quick job that you can turn out. Um, for some reason. Yeah, it's an emotional, yeah. emotional connection to a subject as well. And that, that yeah. can obviously be quite draining as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have had projects where there's been quite strong stuff, you know, in terms of the theme and the material we're dealing with. And it, it can get to you a bit, you know, so you need to take a break from it and, and so forth. But yeah, it's. I think the whole methodology is about that, though. It's about really getting to understand the place and really being willing to just let the place lead you a bit into making the work as good as it can be. Okay. Um, now, just for our listeners at this point, I also want to say that um, we are going to, at the end of the podcast, give you links so that you can appreciate just how amazing... Um, Mitch's delectograms really are and how much kind of information he kind of manages to get down on the page for each of these and just you know what fascinating narratives come out of them so they're absolutely well worth looking at. Okay so um, we haven't talked about architecture so far but elsewhere you've beautifully described things like the plug ugly prefabs and lives without plumbing and things like the inward facing circles of, of, of wagons. Can, can you take us inside some of these settlements and dwellings that you're observing and t- tell us who lives there? And then, you know, what was it that eventually drew you back to living in a tenement flat? Yeah. Um, so if you want, so we, we call our sites uh, yards or grounds. Um, mm-hmm. It's just the term that we use. Um, and I suppose I've, I've just lived in and around these all my life and they're just very familiar. So it's interesting to have to actually describe it. But so as you walk in the gate, so most of them have a, some kind of wall or fence around them. And if you walk in the gate, um, what you'll find is nowadays, certainly, is a mixture of what you might call chalet homes, quite posh. They are on wheels, but you can't really see the wheels. They're tiny wee things and they're designed to go in flatbeds and be moved. I think park home is another term for them. Um, but I think we like chalets. I think we all like to imagine we're in the Swiss slopes or something. Um, so you'll see a mixture of those. You'll also see road-going wagons, which are coach-built, designed to be in the road all year round, and are homes. They are family homes all year round, and that's what my parents grew up in. I was born into, and my grandparents would live, you know, from soup to nuts, as it were. Um, and then you also see we what we call wee trailers, which is caravans, you know, as other people would call them, you know, the tourer caravans. Um, and then a bunch, you see lorries. Um, at one end of the ground, you'd see a lot of lorries and kind of right. work areas. And, and the lorries kind of, the lorries do everything. They they pull the thing, 
Um, they have all their stuff in them. They have a generator in them, and they double as worksheds. And so you'll see the lorries opened up with the steps, and usually guys in the winter painting around them or fixing something. Um, and that was always the fun part as a kid to go down there and see what your dad and your uncles were doing and annoy them um, quite a bit. Um, so you'd you have that end of the ground there. The kind of more domestic end is where the chalets and, and wagons are, um, and there's a lot of life there too. You know, the, the steps were always very important. You know, I, I remember travelling in the summer. You know, and you'd sit on the steps. And, and when it was a nice day, you'd do you'd play with your toys on the steps. There'd be lots of domestic mm-hmm. stuff. People would wash around them, and um, you know that was just just normal. So, a kind of modern yard, a contemporary yard, um, has plumbing now. You know we have uh, from about the late nineties, we started to have these kind of hose systems where you could plumb them in, and that was amazing. You know, um, but a lot of them, a lot, even like very modern chalets, will still have a water can on the step as a wee kind of reminder of how it used to be, which is that was your water supply and I remember as a boy being sent down to the tap and you filled the water up and Right. If, if your mum was washing you'd be going doing that three or four times a day if not five or six you know um, and that was just kind of normal then so there are ways in which the lifestyle is more modern you go inside one of these things and whether it's an old wagon or a chalet I mean firstly clean I mean this doesn't look clean here but this is my studio right this is my workshed I'm in right now um, but you go into a chalet you know I mean, F spotless, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, usually someone wiping up crumbs right behind you as you go in. Um, a lot of the old wagons used to have winter and summer carpets, actually, to sort of deal with um, the kind of outside stuff. Um, a lot of ornaments, very, very well appointed. It's like a palace inside, you know, but tiny often, you know. Um, and and there was tremendously, could you call it house proud, wagon proud? I don't know. Um, it was, was a big thing. So outside you had this very organic life, you know, quite dirty life, you know, a lot of fixing and, you know, smell of diesel, you know, is, is just mm-hmm. such an evocative one for me. Um, but inside, you know, pristine, you know, shoes off, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. newspaper down if you're coming in um, from working on the lorries and, and stuff like that. being respectful, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that was very much the life I kind of remember and, and still is, you know, and you go into some of these big, big grounds, you know, there's some down in uh, kind of Rutherglen and canvas lying that are just everyone's sort of copying each other as well in terms of the style and stuff and they've got the best ornaments and stuff it's really really posh so it's quite surprising to a lot of people you know they, they expect i think quite rough and ready and it does look that way outside to an outsider you know right um but then you go inside and it's like oh god dare i dare i sit down on this couch that's you know and um, with these pristine these lovely plump cushions and, and so forth and that that was always the life i remember you know in terms of why we moved back, I mean, so I, I lived in a tenement for quite a few years, actually, um, and liked it. You mm-hmm. know, tenements are, are a great way of living in many ways, very interesting way of living. But I, for, I think a lot of reasons. One, we wanted to start a family, and for a child, it's a great environment because you have, well, okay, childcare, right? You talk to my friends and talk to me about childcare. I am doing so well, right, on that front. <laughs> I, there's like an auntie next door, there's a... My cousin there, my, my my nephew there, all these people I can just hit up sure. for childcare in a second. Um, and I, I just remember as a kid, you know, just playing outside with this circle of wagons around you. Because most, most um, showmen's yards are a rough circle or rectangle. You know, we all sort of face into each other. Mm-hmm. And it's just very safe and very kind of comforting. You know, there's an adult who knows you nearby at all times but you can also just do your own thing and you know get into trouble and do all the stuff that that you want to do skin your knees and and so forth so when we were thinking about having our daughter you know um who's three now and really enjoying the traveling life too um it was a kind of a no-brainer it's like it makes sense and then you know it's also quite a cost-effective way of living in many ways you know we we could we could live more cheaply also my, my parents were getting older and i just wanted to be around um for them um and able to help a bit more in, in that. Um, but yeah, my, my wife's a, not a, a show person. Um, she's a normal. Um, and But she very bravely said, let's give it a try. You know, let's, let's, I would never say to her, but she said, let's give it a try. Let's see what it's like. And we had a five-year plan. If, if she was fed up and after five years, we would, we would go and get a house again, you know. Um, and it's been seven now. So I think she's liking it he has not requested to move at any stage um and is actually talking about getting a bigger you know chalet home uh, maybe in the future so um yes yeah, it's, it's a way of life that i think really suits us and has a lot to recommend it mm-hmm. it sounds incredibly close-knit um and like real sense of community 
about about the place, which yeah, just it, yeah, yeah, tenements can be like that, but not to the degree that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean that obviously that's got its upsides and downsides. You know, I did have to t- explain to my wife about how you get some privacy, you know, and, and the methods of that. And um, people don't knock on doors, for example, right? My, my my sister has never knocked on my door ever. She just walks in, and you just hear her coming in. <laughs> um, and you know, everyone can see what you're doing as well. And so there are obviously. I suppose a price to be paid in that sense if you're more used to doing your own thing and it's just a sort of balance you have to have during the lockdown my mother-in-law came to live with us from Fife and and she loved it actually she really liked um, living there but I think one thing she never got used to was the fact that people just came in the door you know she would when she saw someone coming to see us she would go to the door and they were like what are you doing why are you because we just kind of walk into each other's doors all the time and just you know no one ever comes to the door to greet you if you're another you know showman you're just uh, yeah come in you know tease over there you know it's very kind of informal that way um so yeah there are as i say that's that can be great other times it's like okay they're going to see what we're doing here how do we how do we stop that? You know, how do we get get some privacy? So it's not it's not for everybody. And I would say, I think what was interesting was my wife dealt very well with it. But it is, it is a culture shock as well when you go from, you know, being being an individual unit within a city to you're kind of living in a village, really. You know. Yeah, to be something that sounds more like an enlarged family. Yeah, I mean, we, we do live in big extended families, so our our wee ground, you know. Um, most of us are there, you know, my brother, my sister, cousins, um, my brother's kids, uh, my mother and father, you know, uh, in-laws as well. You know, it's all a big, sprawling, extended family. Um, and that's, sure. It uh, sounds much more like how, how a village would have been. Yeah, yeah. Everyone knows who you are. They know by your face, right? They, they probably knew your grandfather as well. It's things like, I mean, they, they probably knew you as a, a child, shall we say, you know, um, in short trousers. And that's yeah. just how it is and that again it's very there's a lot I missed about that and a lot I kind of love about mm-hmm. it but it's also I quite can imagine you know, why, yes. it's a tight embrace you know yeah. it's a tight embrace put it that way yes okay well bearing, bearing that in mind that kind of brings me on to my next question which is you know you've talked about this really kind of close-knit community so then when you're looking at things like the regeneration of the city particularly in places like Govan Waterrow Govan that must be a huge threat to you know, what is a small, really close knit community. So, can you tell us more about about the feelings about that? Yeah. So, um, Waterloo and Govan is one of the older sites that we have. It's mm-hmm. at least over a hundred years old. Um, as I say, that we can trace our sites in the city back at least two hundred and odd years. But you know, there are certainly there's a handful of sites that are over a hundred, and we have a very long history in the city, and certainly. Waterloo is one of them. Um, that's if you include Govan as part of Glasgow, and I know that for Governites, that's a big that's, issue. That's, yes. um, <laughs> it's the issue, isn't it? Um, but yeah, Waterloo is, there's two yards there, um, owned by two different families, but big again, big extended families, and there's about 12 families involved there. 12 plus, actually, I think. I'm quite sure exactly how many now. So around roughly two tenement buildings worth of people live there and have lived there for a long time. And there's a very old, very old association with Govan as well mm-hmm. um, and Govan Old Kirk and things like that. Um, so they're, they're in the way of the new development at Waterloo. Um, now, I think a couple of things to emphasise whenever these discussions come up. One is we pay council tax and we pay lease on the ground that we do. No one's squatting here, right? These are, you know, the Johnsons, for example, who have one of the yards, they've been playing their way on that yard for a long long time okay um and it's always something that comes up you now do you pay council tax do you pay your way and yes we do you know we're like everybody else unfortunately we have to pay the tax man yeah you, you, you know you have just as much a right to, sit, uh, to the city as everybody else and i think that's the issue Neil. it's not like we want special treatment actually it's yeah. just we, we pay our way and we, we we live a we live an odd way we know that we know it's odd and not everyone's cup of tea but all we want to do is live that way and, and not bother other people and what you'll find is in most of the parts of the city we're in, people don't even notice us half the time, you know. Mm. Um, so, so the water row has to move, right? And, and that has been known for a while. Um, and actually, a lot of the families there were fine with that. It was like, okay, we, we're not going to get in, we don't want to get in the way of this. We can see what benefit that brings to, to govern. And, and they are governites. They've, they've been, their kids go to school there. Their doctors are there. Their lives are there, yes. you know, when they're not traveling. Yes. So it, it wasn't as if, you know, they, they didn't want things to get better there or go ahead um but what happened was uh, unpicking this is quite quite complex so i'll I'll tell you my involvement 
and my perspective in it. So okay. in 2018, when that first was announced and it was announced that the families had to move, I think the attitude was they, they wanted to work with the council as much as possible and, you know, cooperate. But certainly the consultation was very thin and engagement was very intermittent. They were not never actually, to their knowledge, even to this day, um, told in writing what was happening. Um, they were just told mm-hmm. uh you know, verbally, that this was going to happen. Um, myself and a group of other researchers who are from a showground, showground background in, in Fair Scotland, we wrote um, a, let, a series of letters, open letters to different councillors, just asking to, to deal with this issue and to firstly improve the, the, the level of conversation um, and then to address the provisions in Glasgow's own housing strategy, page 94 to 97, if I remember rightly, which says... You know they have to provide an alternative model site, you know, like for like as best they can. Um, and as I say, um, picking apart what some people think on different sides can be difficult. But from our perspective, there has not been a positive engagement with that. There has not been a conversation um, or a paper trail around that of any quality. And I, we sent a letter in twenty eighteen. It has yet to be answered by anybody. Um, and this is twenty twenty three. So. You can sort of see the predicament the families are in and why, you know, they've went from cooperative to now really quite angry and scared I can, I can imagine. as well. I can imagine. I, I mean, I recall going along to the, the consultation um, and it was just kind of a drop-in thing in, um, in Govan at the time, just because I was interested in seeing what was happening. And I remember there being a woman from the, from the water site there and it, there did seem to be a real disconnect, which kind of did make me feel really uncomfortable because it's kind of a core thing of consultation is you've got to be able to connect into communities and explain things to them. And it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's very difficult because it is a very private community and then this kind of massive thing is being done to them. And yet Glasgow, with its kind of history of comprehensive development areas and regeneration from the kind of 1960s onwards, you would have thought would learn the lessons that you can't do things to people. You've got to take people with you it's very frustrating yeah um and it, you know it's, we're not the only community who has this kind of issue we know this um of course not you know there's lots of stories around glasgow like that i suppose what kind of worries me is that you know when when we were included in the 2017 to 22 housing strategy which was great that was a step forward it was the first time they recognized they should be trying to push the envelope and how they work with our community um that was hopeful that was progress but then we've seen the first case, test case of that, and right. it's not worked out. It's not been very encouraging. Right. And as someone who lives in a yard myself, just to be selfish, I'm like, what happens when mine's in the way of something? Yes. You know, yeah. Does it? Does the fact I live in four wheels, you know, just make me a different type of citizen? Should I? Should I build foundations, legal or not? Yeah. To to make me a better citizen, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's 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 really quite quite concerning, and I think Glasgow's missing a trick actually here to lead by example we we have a big community here yes. it's a big community it's a community that lives for the most part very peacefully and mm-hmm. unnoticed um as part of the city and they could really be showing how it can be done and so far i'm not seeing it completely agree i mean it's funny because it's not as if it's a if, as if it's a new issue when the whole kind of regeneration of the, the east end kicked off even in advance of the commonwealth games um, I was involved in that kind of from 2006 onwards and I remember kind of going and having a look at that area relatively early on because we got involved with looking at Bridgeton Cross and the area around Dalmarnock um, Station and the potential regeneration of Dalmarnock Station. And so um, this was my previous life as an architect. And we're wandering around the area taking photographs and just trying to get a feel for it because you didn't really know that part of the city terribly well. And of course, there's a, there's a big community right bang in the middle of that. And it was made really clear to us, you know, would you please not take photographs of our spaces? And we respected that. Um, as you should be respecting and kind of any community that you come across. But it just, it seems so, it seems strange to me that that, you know, from that basis there, when you're thinking, hold on a minute, there's an issue here, we have to think about this, nobody's really done it. 
Yeah, uh, and you know, Dalmarnik's, I, I could talk about Dalmarnik for quite some time as well, but I, I won't bore you to death. But, um, you know, Dalmarnik was why I picked up the pen with dialectogram right. you know, back all those years ago. That was the clearance of Dalmarnik or the potential yes. clearance of Dalmarnik. Yeah. And we didn't lose as many as we thought. It's still the biggest concentration of us actually in Glasgow. Yes. Um, but that was looking like, wow, that whole, all these relatives that I've got, all these people I know, that life I remember, you know, visiting these yards, going mm. down there. Um, that's just going to be cleared yeah. away, you know. Yes. And what? Where do they go? Yeah. What's the plan? And there wasn't one really um, of any kind. And that—that's kind of why I, I did the first dialectogram actually, which yes. was kind of made in anger slightly. Um, and I just wanted to show that you know what you might not like this way of life, or you may have issues with it. You may have you know, even prejudices about it. But what you can't say is it's not a way of life. There is a yeah, there's a system to how we live. There's a culture here. There's a whole culture there. You should be respecting and. A key part of what kind of emerged from all that process was that there had to be, and this is very much due to the regeneration of the East End as part of it, there should have been a health impact assessment. And so the impact on that community should have been properly assessed. Because, you know, we know from what happened in Glasgow back then that this is you know, the consequence of suddenly scattering communities to the four winds. Um, you know, how tight-knit these communities were and suddenly all those kind of soft social bonds are shattered that the impact that has on people's health and psyche and it's really damaging absolutely yeah um and again what concerns me about Waterloo is that i know there's a, there's a lot of elderly a lot of very young mm. families mm. there and young people and a lot, a lot of quite you know i'll call them vulnerable in the sense that you know they could be made vulnerable by this you know they're quite proud and i wouldn't want to just play that on them but you know the, the effects of this movement, if it's not done right, if, if it's just a scattering of them, if it's having to go to some site that's just really deeply unsuitable, um, would just be, would be terrible, you know, and, and the effects, as I say, are almost hard to quantify. Um, yes. But we do have an example of this before. You know, there used to be sites in White Inch and Hull Street mm -hmm. in the West End, other side of the, other side of the river. Right. They got moved to Dalmarnock, of course, right. um, and they were right next to the sewage works again. You know, so there's there's all sorts of ways in which we do you do find this obviously in the least you know pleasurable parts of the city or mm -hmm. the parts that people really don't want to go until, of course, someone realizes it can be something can be made of that, yeah. of course, uh, and then again suddenly we're a problem. So yes. I, I do think you know people might be listening to this thinking, well, you know, why can't they just you know. Be more reasonable, or be more normal, or you know, live in houses, you know. And I think it's it's not that we want special treatment, but it's your land. Yeah, exactly. This land is bought. It's leased. You know, it's legally bought. You know, and they, they apply for planning. You know, I, I have a cousin who has a site, and it's like a, it's just beautiful. It's like yeah, I wouldn't even eat my dinner off it because I'd be besmirching it. You know, yeah, he, he keeps yeah, it so yeah well. absolutely. And it's just the, the, all all we really want to do is actually. Um, get on with our lives, you know, and, mm -hmm. and not be a bother, yeah. um, in a sense. Yeah, it's just kind of, I mean, this kind of brings me on to my next question, because it's about, you know, the stress that communities are, are, are placed under. And at the same time, you know, there's this massive change going on in Glasgow, and you, you, you're kind of living through um, this time of kind of enormous disruption. And, you know, your, your work, what you're doing kind of celebrates that, that really unique culture. But then how much is that culture already changing and evolving? And, you know, are you seeing those changes in the way the younger generation think and speak and about how they want to live? So are you seeing that too? Yeah, um, I think that one thing to stress is that, you know, we're, we're not immune to history. However, that history comes to us, whether it's through regeneration or just through the processes that are, are there. You know, our, our young people have phones, you know, they... There's interesting mixtures of valley speak and our own dialect and Glaswegian going on there. Um, you know, it's we're like anybody else. You know, we're sort of changing with the times. We have PlayStation fives and you know broadband. Um, so yeah, no, there's there is change, and I think it's it's a it's a change I've kind of been charting and noticing quite a lot of. So for example, in my grandparents' time, you were. 80% nomadic, very rarely in, you know, your season at, in the winter was very short, as in the off-season, you were out again by February, you know, knocking ice off the wheels, um, and you, you would just wear, you know, a perpetual nomad, really, and that was life, and that was fine, and it, you, you, you lived very cheaply, and you you did your thing, and, and you did that one thing, which was fairs and circuses, that was what you did. Um, but that's changed now. It's, it's very diverse now, I think. Um, you know, even on our tiny wee yard, which is not a big one, you know, we've got some people who work in offices. We've got a joker who 
teaches the art school and draws for a living, which is just a ridiculous thing. Um, you know, th there are many different jobs and, you know, that people do. But actually, interestingly, people still want to live on the yards with their family. They still want to retain that. Yeah. Um, even those who do travel, you know, they often do it part time or they'll, they're almost like portfolio work now where, you know, they might have, might have a job driving or, or doing something with a snack bar. Um, if you mean to a snack bar in Glasgow, by the way, you've probably met a relative of mine, just to be, be clear. But, you know, they, they have a kind of mixture of ways of incomes that they bring in as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's changed. Our, our young people, for example, we have a very good education system here in Glasgow for them that came about because, well, basically a bunch of um, women in our community really fought for it. Mm -hmm. And so it's now quite normal for people to go into higher education. Right. But they don't necessarily leave. In my day, you did. It was a choice you made. Right. You were going to assimilate. You were going to you know, go out there. And that was what we did. And you, you never mentioned where you came from either. But mm -hmm. the younger generation now, I think, they're a bit, actually a bit more bullshit, a bit more like, no, we're not going to we're not going to hide it, and also we're going to go to uni, but we might just come back and still work on the fairs. We'll blend our lives in interesting mm -hmm. ways, and you know, not necessarily make that um, break that would have traditionally come with that decision. You know, so I think it's I'm, I'm trying to sort of embrace a, a whole range of complexity. It's quite hard to put into words. Actually, it's it's changing a lot. I, I don't think my grandparents would quite recognise. They'd recognise some parts and feel comforted by that, right. but they'd also be quite surprised, I think, at how, how much we've changed as a community. Sure. The kind of traditions have evolved over time and generations. Yeah. Having said that, you know, we have these big chalet homes and they're palatial and they're big, but they're still on wheels. They still move, you know, if they have to. We still want them to be able to move, you know. So there's, there's all these ways in which things persist as well. And it is kind of amazing we're still here as well you know that fairs are not going through a good time you know it's not even legal on some fairs to have your caravans there with you you know and yet we're still doing it and it's not because of the money because it's a terrible way of making money i, I can't stress that enough it always has been actually right. if you look at what my even my great-grandparents were going through but it's a tradition it's a lifestyle it's a world in its own and yeah my, my nephew who's 22 he wants to do this and I'm like you're mad but it's great well done but you're insane you know it's a terrible way of making a living so I don't know I, I always get asked you know is this lifestyle going to survive and I'm, mm -hmm. I think well as long as there are people bloody minded enough to want to still live it then yeah well okay can you tell me more about who the Glasgow giant is this kind of big bold fat guy with elephant feet this cartoon figure that kind of mm -hmm. emerges from the rubble of Red Road can you tell us any more about, about that? Uh, <laughs> well, this is the cartoonist part of me, I suppose. Um, and also maybe a part of my brain it's best not explored. But um, <laughs> I, I worked at Red Road for many years. As you know, I, I produced five dialectograms. Yeah. You know, fascinating place. And a place that really kind of made me mm -hmm. as uh, an artist, if you like. Um, oh, a lot. You know, I kind of really came to love the place, even though it had all these contradictions. And I think just looking at when that demolition happened, you know, and actually that demolition was ongoing. There was successive demolitions before the, the big one. Right. As it were. Um, I think I was just, I think it was after the, maybe the first or second of them that happened. I sort of started to really just think about this character and develop this character in my sketchbook one day of, I don't know, what, what, what represents progress or what represents a city, a big organisation that's very complex. It doesn't always know what one hand is doing from the other. How do you represent that? Apparently, it's a big, fat, bald guy uh, with elephant feet. I don't know. Um, it just kind of came. <laughs> just a bald. And, <laughs> yeah. And it's not about saying, you know, it's not like being pejorative even. It's about, you know, because I think, you know, Glasgow, listen, I love the place, right? Unconditionally. Um, much as it annoys me at times. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the way in which the city tries to improve itself can sometimes be inspired and sometimes just be really destructive and terrible and so the giant kind of represents that he represents a sort of lumbering sort of attempt to move forward and occasionally crushing things flat right. and occasionally making a mess of things and i don't know it's a bit i mean my, my wife finds it very creepy because of the way the eyes are and stuff but I, to me i i look at it affectionately it's like uh -huh. this is a city trying to change and not always getting it right yes so there's a series of these drawings i've made that did, did a bunch for the guardian where you know it's just uh different places like Red Road or a traveller's yard or, you know, other types of site. And I'm just putting the giant in there. As right, a sort of right. 
marker of what's happening. Do you feel kind of touching on that? Do you feel a sense of responsibility for you know how you record people in your dialectograms? Oh, huge! Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It does actually. It does worry me sometimes. You know, am I doing this right? Am I getting this? You know, am I doing this well? Am I doing this responsibly? Because you know, I do think. Um, you know, as an artist, you get some license, and I see it myself. I go into a place as an art, as an artist, for example, and you know, I can ask really stupid questions. I can get in on conversations I really shouldn't be in, involved in, you know, and it's quite easy in a way. And, and you could really misuse that. Yes, you could really yeah, yeah. do terrible things with that if you wanted. And some have, you know, yes. let's look at the history of art. There's, there's loads of that. Yes. Um, but I, I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying not to be wishy-washy per se, but to just be very careful and thoughtful about where that power goes, how I'm using that mm-hmm. capital mm-hmm. I get from, from my position. Um, and yeah, trying to trying to make it with that community. Again, not trying to pretty them up or make it too feel-good or touchy-feely even, just trying to be genuinely objective, admitting my own subjectivity and then trying to work through that to make make images and representations that mean something, but also try not to cause chaos in my own wake, you know, as well. That's, that's really important to me. Mm-hmm. So what lies ahead for you? Um, what kind of new work are you planning at the moment? Right. Um... Well, there's one thing I can't announce yet, so I won't even talk about that. So I'll forget I even said that right now. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, at, at, the, at the moment I'm working um, with the Museum of European and Mediterranean Civilization in Marseille. Oh, wow. Isn't that an impressive sense? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is, is a really, really interesting and, and nerve-wracking project, mm-hmm. um, looking at Romani culture right. in Europe. So Barvalo will be the first big exhibition in a European museum about Romani culture unbelievably if you consider you know the thousand year of history and all the opportunities that they've had Um, and this will be so I don't know if you know the museum but it's it's a big Borg cube on the the kind of harbour at Marseille it's it's kind of amazing Um, and I'm working on two works for them at the moment Mm -hmm. um, looking at migration and language and I'm working with an amazing team um, with the museum University of Vermont and uh, an organisation called ERIAC, which is the European Romani Cultural Organisation, who very nicely asked me to be part of the whole thing, which was um, really quite something. So working on that um, right now, it's like I'm looking at it just now, um, and yeah, still still kind of working on that, and that will be um, exhibited in April as well. So that's the main thing I'm working Any on. Any sort of positive changes you'd like to see? In terms of Glasgow? Oh, just kind of um, your work and kind of yeah, impact on Glasgow? Um, I mean, I'd, I think I'd be very careful about overstating any changes I make, right? I think what I get to do is I get to ride along with people who are often doing very good things mm-hmm. you know, and are good people in that sense. So, for example, you know, uh, a, a dialectogram I did of Baltic Street Adventure Playground. You know, those guys are doing amazing work with the young people down there, bringing play to that area that really needed it. I've just been working up at Postle with um, the Clay Pits um, local nature reserve people who took a bit of wasteland, which is in effect a nature reserve already, but you know, very hard to get into, and made it into something beautiful that anyone can go and see and access. And I was in, I was there just the other day with my daughter, and you know, it was amazing just how diverse the pe- the communities of people who use that now are. So you have to go, you have to go, and if you go, you might bump into a big dialectogram that's installed <laughs> there, um, which uh, you know, <laughs> it was quite a job actually. It was quite a tri- tricky one to draw, but you know, I I think I often feel I'm along for the ride in a lot of these things. I'm there, I get to see these people doing the thing and I get to maybe contribute something to it, even if it's just a record of that um, in some way. And that's always been, that's what keeps me doing it, to be honest with you, you know, because honestly, you know, sometimes, you know, you're, you're there at 12 o'clock at night, still drawing this damn thing and you really just wish you'd done landscapes or, you know, um, cartoons down at the, down in Hyde Park or something, you know, <laughs> it's just like, there's got to be easier ways of doing this and you do get a bit scunnered with it, but, Every every time one of these projects comes about, I realise why this is a great way to, to work, you know, and a, and a great kind of job to be able to do. Sure. Um, so I, I carry on doing it. Sure. You know, until till the end, probably. <laughs> okay. Um, final question, and it's a total loaded question. We ask everybody who comes on the podcast this question. <laughs> What is your favourite building in Glasgow? And it can be a building that, you know, has disappeared or is still around. It can be static. It could be mobile. What would it tell you if its walls could talk? Oh, 
Um, I thought about this quite a lot. This was the hardest one. And I really wish I'd called Chris Leslie and copied his notes. But um, okay, so let's, I'll, I'll talk very briefly about the ones that didn't make it, right? Mm-hmm. So I did, the, the Battle Land always makes me happy mm-hmm. just to see it, right? Always will. And it's one of my favourite dialectograms, of course, as well that I did. Um, but I'm not going to choose that. I'm not going to choose the Kelvin Hall, which would be the natural one given the theme of today. Because sure. I grew up with stories of the Kelvin Hall Carnival. You know, mm-hmm. My mum mm-hmm. was in there from a very wee girl to, you know, her final days there. And, you know, it was just, you know, the stories and the, the lore of that. Very tempted to pick that. But what I thought I'd do is I'd, I'd go hipster. Um, so there's a, there's a very strange building on Balmore Road that, when I was working up at the stables, Lamhill Stables, mm-hmm. right? I was doing a dialectogram up there. And I would pass this every day. And it's a bookies, right? It's a bookmaker's. Uh-huh. And it's a... Go, go and see it, right? It's kind of boarded up now and it's looking like it's going to... I mean, it looks like if you would touch it, it would fall down now, right? Okay. But it's a very strange building. It's got two gable wings. It's really quite well built. It's got a bookmaker sign on it. So this... And it seems to represent... Just a different era. I mean, there must have been buildings around here that were just just a very different landscape to what we know now. And it's still there. Right. It's And I right. don't know anything about it. Right. And I want to. Right. And I just, every time I walk past it, I see it and I'm like, I want to know more about what that is. So I'd love to <laughs> know more about the building. I'd love to hear it talk. I don't, I don't know it. So that's that's intriguing. I, will, I must go and have a look. See if I can figure it out. Go and check it out. It's on it's on, it's on Google Street View as well. You can see it on Balmore Road. Right. Um, it's not a distinguished building, but it is a very interesting one, and that's that's my choice. Interesting choice. Okay, right. I have to go and check that one out and see, see if I can figure out something of its backstory and where it came from. Let me know what you find out. <laughs> I will do. That would be, that would be yeah, wonderful. <laughs> we could have a further conversation about that then. Um, Sounds good. Mitch, I have to say, complete pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for answering all the questions and, and letting us know what your favourite building is. It's very much appreciated. You're welcome. And thanks for having me on. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Do you want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. The podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnocks.